Hey friends, and welcome back to Health Simple Radio. Today, I am joined with Carol Kwiatkowski, who is the executive director of an organization called TEDx. And no, it's not your typical TEDx that you have likely heard about or watched. It's actually called the Endocrine Disruption Exchange. And this is very, very interesting. They study environmental and health impacts on the chemicals that are exposed to us every day, known as endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, Now, Carol, I heard you on another podcast, and it was about the time that I actually moved to Bali, where we have a really big plastic issue, and a lot of this is what you were talking about. Um, So, you know, I'm really excited to have you on here to discuss. So first, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. But Carol, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background and your story of kind of what got you into into this area of research? So I was um, in the early 2000s, I was an assistant professor at the University of Colorado in Denver. And uh, well, I had left that job, actually, and I had moved to a, a smaller town in western Colorado. And I had two young children that I was raising. And um, I was looking for um, so I had been studying uh, prevention of disease transmission, and um, then I was looking for, uh, while I was, uh, my kids were young, I was looking kind of for some part-time work to just stimulate my brain again, and I um, learned that this woman named Dr. Theo Colborn was living in this small town and had started a nonprofit. She was um, about 80 years old at that time and had retired from her work in Washington, D.C. and moved back to Western Colorado, where she raised her family. And um, so I called her up and I said, you know, I live in this town. I have a PhD. I'm not exactly in your field, but I might be able to help you out. Um, and I didn't even know a whole lot about what she did. And so she invited me over to her house and I, um, I literally had looked her name up in the phone book because friends had told me about her. And uh, she, I was thinking it was quite kind of an interview and she ended up talking to me for hours about endocrine disruption and everything that was going on and it was it was so moving and and anybody who has met Theo she passed away a couple years ago but um we'll tell you a similar story about how inspiring she was Mm. turns out she was um widely known in the environmental health field um considered an environmental hero by some and won many awards and had is credited as one of the founders of the field of endocrine disruption. Cool. So she was um, studying wildlife around the Great Lakes when she uh, realized that there was something wrong with the offspring of the wildlife, that the adults looked fine, but they weren't giving birth to as many uh, young and they weren't, uh, the, the children weren't thriving. They, were, they had issue, health issues. So that's kind of the roots of the field of endocrine disruption. Um, and that's how I got started is I worked for her, uh, for a few hours a week for about a year. And then they, uh, were looking for someone to take on the, um, executive director position. So I put my hat in the ring for that. That was in 2007. Yeah. Interesting. And so when they were looking at these animals around the Great Lakes, I'm actually from London, Ontario, Toronto. So right around the Great Lakes as well. Um, what was what were they finding? Did, is this where they kind of realized what was going on with the endocrine disruptors? Yes, it, it is. It's where she got her uh, her her ideas really germinated um, because they were seeing things in all different species that were the the fish in the water, the birds, especially the big birds. You know, bald eagles. Um, they had problems like their bills were crossed, and so they couldn't 
feed properly and then they would die. They, um, there's something called eggshell thinning. So when the babies are, the, or the eggs are laid, the shell is too thin and they break, mm-hmm. they're fragile. So there were these kind of minor seeming things, you know, not like the government was and still is, you know, really hooked on looking for cancerous tumors as the health outcome that they're concerned about. And that's what they'll regulate chemicals if they're carcinogens. Um, but this was a little different. These were just things that were causing um, the the offspring not to thrive, and um, but really affecting population levels. And um, there were things like the parents weren't having proper parenting behaviors, so they would leave the nest. They wouldn't, you know, sit on the eggs for long enough. Things like that that were just disruptions, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and in a lot of different species, and they even started looking at humans around the lakes who were eating the fish and finding similar things, kids with, you know, neurodevelopmental problems, learning problems, and things like that. Wow, so, interesting. You know, it's funny that yeah. you just mentioned about the eggs. Just this morning, I was getting eggs with my, with my buddy here. And, and for some reason, whatever it is, the eggs here that you get, like, from chickens – the shells are really, really thin. And we were trying to figure out why that was. So I have no idea if it has anything oh, to do with interesting. it. Uh, but we were literally just talking about it this morning. So I just find that super interesting. Um, I would find, try to find out if the, the, the natives there know whether or not that's a new phenomenon or if it's always been that way. Yeah. So you're Step saying- one. And then I can maybe send you some research on it. Yeah, that would be, that would be amazing. So, so, so what is it? What are these- Okay, we're, we hear that there's these endocrine disruptors. What are these chemicals? Where are they coming from? You know, what, what do we need to be looking for? Because you're saying they're in the Great Lakes. Is it plastics? Is it what else is there? What's going on? So the things that we focus on most here, there's a lot of different plastics, and there are a lot of different chemicals that are used in plastics. It's not just the primary thing that makes it plastic, but there's also dyes and flame retardants and antimicrobials and things like that. Um, but the plastics that we study primarily because they're the really well-known endocrine disruptors are the bisphenols and the phthalates. Okay. And so you've probably heard of BPA in uh, water bottles. And there's a lot of things in part because um, consumers learned about BPA in water bottles. And so they started complaining. And, um, you know, there are a lot of nonprofits that were leading the charge on that in educating people. And so companies started taking BPA out of water bottles. And then, so then things were labeled as BPA free, which led people to, you know, mm-hmm. want those even more. Turns out that they, there are a lot of different bisphenols. So that was bisphenol A. They replaced it with bisphenol S or bisphenol F or a bunch of other bisphenols that just really didn't have very much research on them at all. Um, we and other people started pulling together the literature and the other bisphenols and said, this is not good. These are not safe either. So now people are studying kind of the whole class of bisphenols, which there are dozens of them, I believe, mm-hmm. um, maybe more. Um, and, and really saying that these are not, it's not that none of them are safe, but as far as we know, most of them aren't. And the bisphenol A was actually developed in the, uh, well, I think it might've been developed in the late 1800s, but in the 1930s, it was being looked at as a, um, an estrogen. It, it is an estrogen. It's a synthetic estrogen. And it didn't really work well in the medical field for that. Um, but it, then after World War II, when they started looking at repurposing a lot of the chemistry from uh, things that were developed for the war effort, um, 
it became, they discovered that it makes a great plastic. Like it's really clear, it's hard, it's durable. Um, uh, so it, they began using it, you know, that was the era of a better living through chemistry and um, the world of plastics is, is where the focus began back then after World War II. Um, sorry, I went on quite a bit about that. But the other uh, group of chemicals are phthalates. So bisphenols tend to make the hard plastics, the things that are really, you know, hard to the touch. And then phthalates make things softer. So baby toys, um, things that are um, more flexible in plastics, um, some food packaging. Phthalates are also used, interestingly, they're a carrier for fragrances. And so they use them in various fragrances, whether it's things that are in your um, it, cosmetics, things that you put on your skin, lotions, perfumes, they, um, even in air fresheners, possibly. They make things last longer. They make scents last longer. So they show up there too. Bisphenols, in addition to being plastics, are what uh, are used to coat the um, top of the cash register receipt paper that you get that um, it's called thermal paper because just the heat from your fingernail, you can write on it and it makes leaves a mark. It's kind of that slick, shiny thing. And that's a very thin coat of, of BPA or some alternative bisphenol that um, uh, migrates away from that piece of paper really easily. It's not bound very tightly to the paper. So that ends up spreading it everywhere. It's in you know, people's purses, in their pockets, in their grocery bags, and on their mm -hmm. food. Um, another source of, just, of a plastic, surprisingly. So those are primarily the ones that we focus on as endocrine disruptors. I actually heard you talk about the receipts before, and, and now I, I don't touch receipts. I just say, no, I don't need it's it. Good. Pull the cash rate yeah. me and then don't even touch the receipt as best yeah, as I can. Yeah. Although I guess it's probably getting onto the cash that I'm grabbing as well because it's touching it. Um, but what can you do? Uh, <laughs> so do the best you can. Yeah, exactly. So can before we dive into all the plastics and different types, let's just talk about uh, the endocrine system. And so let's understand what's actually getting disrupted here. Can you explain uh, what the endocrine system is, first of all? Sure. It's the um, it's like a signaling system for your hormones. It's it's how your um, glands and organs communicate with each other. So they send hormones from one place to the next as like messenger chemicals, and they work at the cellular level primarily, or in the nucleus of the cell, to um, create you know to make things happen basically. And um, most people think of your reproductive organs as having to do with hormones. Um, but it's not only those, it's also your brain, your heart, even your skin, your muscles, um, your kidneys, your liver, those are all have uh, endocrine uh, system receptors. They have hormone receptors mm -hmm. in the cells that send and receive um, chemicals to communicate with each other. It works through your blood. So like insulin is a hormone, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, thyroid hormones, there's upwards of 50 different hormones in the, that we know of. It's basically so, controlling uh, yeah. most things that are happening inside of our body. Yeah. So then, Especially during development, especially when, when you're in the womb, in the early, early stages of life. Um, okay. The endocrine system develops very early and helps, helps direct the development of all those different gl glands and organs to go from cells into actual organs and tissues and then into whole systems to create the body. Uh, 
Interesting. I did not know that. So this is why you see such significant effects um, on, you know, like the younger compared to an adult, let's say. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, adults can, from what we know, they can kind of bounce back a little bit better from this. Whereas when you're, those systems are developing, there can be permanent, you know, damage from that because they don't develop properly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what, what exactly is happening when these um, endocrine disruptors or these chemicals enter our body? What's it doing that's actually causing uh, the, the issues? So um, it, by disrupting that signaling system, it uh, either disrupts in those early years the development of those systems or later on can just interfere with how the systems are working. It can... Um, the chemicals basically either mimic your natural hormones okay. or they block your natural hormones from functioning or they can cause more or less production of those hormones. And so then it's not, you know, the, the, it's not functioning the way it's typically supposed to. And that can um, over time lead to all sorts of things like problems with fertility. You know, we, I talked about the, how some minor things with the wildlife can lead to pretty major differences. You know, if the beak doesn't develop properly, that baby can't feed and the baby dies, you know, what seems like a small thing then becomes life-threatening. So, um, you know, in, in humans that this leads to things like, um, uh, neurodevelopment is a big one. So, um, what your brain's not developing properly and that leading to learning disabilities, ADHD, autism, things like that. And I don't, um, I don't mean to imply that we know that this chemical leads to autism. You know, mm-hmm. it's really hard to say what was the person exposed to in the womb and that that one thing that they experienced is the direct cause of this outcome. Yeah, but there's a lot of research that's done matching up percentages and, you know, people are exposed to this and that and everything. And um, the research, that the research, scientific evidence is just growing and growing and growing. It's become really hard to keep up with it. That's our job is to keep track of all the research and share that with the public. And it's, it's overwhelming what's coming out both from animals and humans and from cellular research. Mm. Um, so they're finding things. One of the biggest growing fields right now is looking at impacts on obesity and diabetes and how disruption of the hormone system early on leads to these things. So all along we've been saying it's about diet and exercise and the, you know, over the last, several decades, people have been dieting and exercising more than ever. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what's having, you know, it's not really changing obesity rates are continuing to go up because right. it's, it's likely that it's these prenatal impacts. Um, interesting. So there's a lot of research going on in those fields. Yeah. Very interesting. So are and, they obs- and nearly, nearly every, go ahead. No, no, I want to hear what you have to say first. <laughs> Okay, I was going to say nearly everybody, you know, in the 90, 95% of people have bisphenol phthalates in their bodies, and they're at really, really low doses. So that was also the thing that this field of endocrine disruption brought to the forefront of scientific, um, you know, exploration was that at these tiny, tiny doses, these effects can happen. It's not like you're getting, this was, so this, we can go back to the Great Lakes research. The Great Lakes had been largely cleaned up 
from what they knew was hugely toxic levels of chemicals in there. And so what Dr. Colborn was doing was looking at, well, are they really clean? Is everything okay? Because they seem to be clean. And this is what she discovered, that these low levels were having problems um, mm. with the endocrine system. Because the endo your n natural endocrine system, your natural estrogens and whatnot, um, respond to tiny amounts of, you know, like a, a parts per trillion of estrogen can have an effect on your body, an impact on your body. So these chemicals that mimic that can do the same. Wow. So it's not even those that are, you know, using plastic bottles that have BPA in them every single day. It's just those trace amounts too. Now, can these, can these chemicals, yeah. is it just from consumption? Can they be absorbed into the skin? Are we inhaling them? How do we, how does that get, enter the body? All of the above. All There's the above. a lot of endocrine disruptors. Um, you know, they're, they're in the air from air pollution, and we do breathe them in. There's effects on the immune system and asthma, think respiratory system. Um, we definitely drink them, um, eat them. You know, pesticides or endocrine disruptors. Again, I'm kind of going beyond the plastic. Um, and, um, and rub them into our skin, cosmetics and personal care products and shaving creams and even toothpaste and things like that have these chemicals in them. It's essentially it's kind of overwhelming. Everything. It is. It's everything we use every single day. In a way, yeah. All the time. Yeah. yeah. It, is, yeah. is the government starting to like, create some regulations? Is there anything changing, whether it be worldwide or just in certain countries? Is anyone really doing anything about this? Or are we just kind of saying whatever, there's not enough research yet, let's just keep doing what we do. In, in the U.S., not much is happening. So when this all became a, an issue um, the, in the mid-90s, the U.S. jumped right on it and started with, um, created an endocrine disruptor screening program and said, we're going to screen chemicals and try to figure out what are the worst offenders. And that program really just lagged for years and years. And probably there wasn't enough research or enough understanding of it then. Um, and it, it, it still exists. It's, you know, been on the short list to get cut, um, but it's still alive. It's just that it's not really doing much. And mostly what they're focusing on is um, screening using uh, in vitro, you know, cell-based screening tests to see which chemicals are active at these at, at what levels in, in the cell. So not really doing much more than that. Although the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences, which isn't a regulatory body, they fund a lot of research on endocrine disruption. And that's why we know as much as we do. But in terms of regulations, there's not um, anything really happening in the US for endocrine disruptors. On the flip side of that, in Europe, they've really over the past five to 10 years been putting a lot of effort into understanding them better and trying to figure out how do we how do we regulate them? Because the method by which they test chemicals for their safety is they're always looking for a level, a dose at which the chemicals are safe. Okay. And this, it doesn't work with endocrine disruptors because such tiny doses can have big effects. So yeah. they kind of had to revamp the whole system. And um, they've been working on that over the years. Just last week, the European Parliament passed a resolution that um, showed the commitment at the you know, highest political level saying, we need to do something about this. We need to remove these from people's everyday lives. So they're working on it from that you know, regulatory standpoint and from the political will standpoint and um, really leading the way around, around the world. And I think people are kind of, other countries are watching them to see how are they going to handle this.
yeah. and they're coming out pretty strong. Um, you know, in, depending on who, who you ask and what, yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. You know what? Different Good countries are responding differently. Good for Europe because every time I talk to someone about whatever health topic it is, I feel like Europe's always taking the lead on doing it. GMOs, you know, the additives that are in foods and in red wine or in, in wines and in alcohol, et cetera. Europe's mm-hmm. they're always leading mm-hmm. the way. So mm-hmm. good, good for them. So here's an yeah. interesting question. And, you know, you've been in this space for quite some time. You know, I look at this and go, okay, every product we have, everything we do pretty much has these chemicals in it. What would your ideal and obviously this would be very difficult to do, I'm sure, but what would your ideal master plan be to have the world, you know, where either plastic or just these endocrine disruptors are just not a thing and they don't exist anymore? Is there, do you have a solution or is it something that you're still trying to figure out yourself? Well, I think that um, it's, it's in, for the most part, it's impossible to remove what's already there. You've probably seen the, um, there's an upswelling of uh, public reaction about plastics in the ocean and the plastics are degrading into, you know, you have that problem in Bali and um, not just the big plastic bottles on the surface and on the beaches, but all the way down to the deepest levels, It's like this murky soup of microplastics and microfibers because the plastic does kind of break into smaller and smaller pieces. It never really goes away, but it breaks into smaller pieces. And so, um, you know, you can't clean up the entire ocean mm. of all of that all the way to the depth. So that's unfortunate. Um, and the other point is that we probably can't live without plastic going forward, given what we've become used to, you know, that plastics are in everything. Like I said, um, you know, there are chemicals that are plastics like phthalates are in our fragrances, mm. everything from that to cars and airplanes and um, your desk and your computer. These are things that we don't really know how to live without. So um, I think that uh, what we need, there's a couple things that I think we need. I don't know if you could call this a master plan, but um, first of all, I think we need to know what is, where the plastics are. You know, the idea that they were on these receipt papers had to be discovered by scientists. Mm -hmm. And that's not really right. So the industries that are using these chemicals, the ones that have really risen to the top is problematic. They need to let, they need to disclose where they are. You know, they talk about it as secret ingredients and so they can't tell where they don't tell people where they are, but that's something that would not be difficult for them to share, you know, with the government, with the science, with scientists, with the public. Um, so we know how we're being exposed and can make uh, an informed choice. Um, the other thing is that there's a field of chemistry called green chemistry, and um, it's it's the idea that that products and chemicals are benign by design. So from the get-go, you start out with the premise that you're not going to um, design a chemical that has uh, that has that impacts people's health. Mm-hmm. You know that has biological effects. And typically, chemists who work for you know product manufacturers or chemical companies are looking for different properties around functionality. They want things to be strong and they want them to be, or they want them to be soft or they want them to be liquid or, you know, they like, how does it work um, is, is what they're going for. Well, they need to work in that biological aspect of it upfront and say, does it have health impacts instead of releasing it into the market as a great product and then saying later, Oh, sorry, everyone's, 
you know, affected and people are getting sick. So we'll come up with something new. They need to, you know, switch that. Um, and I, there's momentum building for that that needs more, you know, government support and it, it needs to be how things are done going forward. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that, yeah, the chemical and the product manufacturers need to be on board with promoting that as, you know, championing it really. The one, one aspect of industry that really has championed that are retailers and um, brand names who are saying, our customers don't want these things in their products. We don't want them either. And so they push that um, kind of desire up the supply chain and say to their product manufacturers, don't sell it. We're not going to buy things that have these chemicals in them. And then they say to the chemical manufacturers, stop using these chemicals because no one's going to buy the product. So there is a point at which consumers have power there. Uh, retailers are using that power and, and it's working in that direction, which is, I think, going to be um, more effective than government because it's, it'll be faster. Absolutely. Um, and then the other, the other piece I would recommend is that um, really just pushing for, safe, for the development of safer alternatives. So that might be a green chemistry <coughs> approach, excuse me. Um, but sometimes it's just a, a different, um, not, not a different chemical, but a different way of, of designing a product so it doesn't need a chemical or it's, it's deciding that we don't need it at all. It's sort of like the reduce, reuse, recycle thing. People mm -hmm. forget that reduce is the first thing. That's the, there's an order to those three on purpose is that if you don't need it, don't use it. So, um, so there's a whole field of, of safer alternatives that's developing um, where people are trying to determine, you know, how can we have what we need and not have the chemicals? And, and, and even if we're not, I guess the, one of the important ideas is there, even if we're not to the point where we can get rid of everything, we can say, of my choices, what's the safest? And mm -hmm. we're going to use that while we develop even safer. So it may not be ideal, but we're working our way towards that because we're always choosing the safest thing. And I think that comes down also to consumers feeling that way as well, saying, I, I don't need this or I need this, but it can, I can do it in a safer way with this choice. That's really all about choice. It is for sure. And you know, one area that I noticed has made some progress is like your, like your cosmetics, like your soaps and your shampoos and deodorants. I mean, I know I, I basically have all, uh, they're all all natural. Uh, they still come in a plastic bottle, which now I'm thinking about it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, they don't have fragrances. They don't have like propylene glycol and all those other different like yeah. chemicals, which is nice. But then I still think, you know, regardless of all that, everything's still coming in plastic. There's still so much plastic. And then what do we even do with all this plastic that we currently have? Even if we were to stop making plastic, can we even get rid of it? Like what, what exactly goes on there? <laughs> I know it's just all getting dumped in the mm. ocean pretty much, but like what, what can we even do anything about this massive problem that we have right now? Or are we just stuck? Plastic is forever. So <laughs> it is, it is, that's a tough one. And I think, you know, there's, you don't want to burn it because then that just makes all these things go up into the air. Um, you could bury it, which I think people are trying to do more, but I, I think there might be issues with that too. Um, putting in the ocean is obviously wrong and it's not, yeah. you know, all of these endocrine problems show up in marine life as well. Wow. So the fish and other, other organisms that live in the oceans are being affected by it. Um, so I don't think that there is a, a, a good solution. I think that there is, like I said, there's this big push to clean up the oceans. And so that's, that's sending a lot of funding in that direction, which is good. And then we just need some really 
you know, smart people to put their heads together and from all different perspectives and say, how can we solve this problem? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, don't like, think the answer is known yet. No. And I mean, like you said, here in Bali, I've, I've definitely noticed the effects. I mean, I go out surfing basically every day and I'm pretty much swimming and surfing with plastic all the time, uh, depending on the swell, but sometimes it comes in and it's really, really bad. And I guess there's other parts of the island that yeah. you can't even see underwater because there's so much plastic, which is, is pretty insane. But I know that they do a lot of like beach cleanups and things here where we pick, go out and pick up plastic on weekends mm-hmm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. But then I just asked myself, you know, where are they putting it? What are we actually doing with it? And I, and I can never really figure that one out. Um, so I think that's yeah. a, a massive issue that, you know, cause we're still producing a lot of plastic. We're still, you know, making this even worse and worse. And, and it's just, it's uh, that, that one kind of is mind boggling to me cause I'm just not quite sure what we can do about that. Yeah, the big plastic manufacturers are are saying, oh, we need to recycle, recycle, recycle. But that's not really it. You need to stop it at the source. Mm-hmm. And um, and the safer alternatives are, are the way to do that um, and to stop the demand for the chemicals. So the plastics are made from petrochemicals. So this all originates with the fossil fuel industry, getting things out of the ground, not even the fuels, but other chemicals that come up from underground. And that's what's used to make the plastic. And so this big boom in fracking, in fracking chemicals, and, and how, or not fracking chemicals, but um, getting gas from using the process of fracking has brought up so much. We have such a glut of fossil fuels now and the chemicals that come with them that that industry is just building up more and more and more capacity to make more plastic. Yeah. So they're going in the opposite direction of where we want to be. And we need to match that push with the demand for safer alternatives and um, Smaller companies are coming up with really exciting, brilliant ideas that um, it, I saw one yesterday uh, in an article about a London marathon, I think it was, where instead of having water bottles where people hand to the runners, they hand water bottles to people as they're running by, they had these little pods that almost look like those um, uh, washing machine pods, these little yeah, plastic yeah. bubbles that have liquid in them, kind of like a gatorade kind of thing that they made. But they're made out of seaweed. They're completely biodegradable. You can even eat them. So they're handing these to the runners and they're just popping them in their mouths. And no plastic waste after the marathon. Because you can imagine cleaning up after a marathon with all those runners, oh. drinking water bottles and chucking them because that, they had just you know, got to focus on their running. That's a lot of plastic waste right yeah. there. So those small Absolutely. solutions are, are happening and you know, hopefully they can scale up and um, the spread you know far and wide the ones that work and that'll be the counter yeah effort what are some of the the easy quick and you know common things that changes that we can make right now like i see a lot of restaurants uh, have switched from plastic straws to like steel straws um, or they do a lot of paper straws here as well Um, but other things that are like daily things that we use are there any like quick changes i know there's like steel or um I'm not sure what else there is, but for containers, because I mean, glass or wood, glass, exactly. Yeah. Any other, any other tips of things that people would commonly use every day that they can switch over right away? I think that that's kind of, um, on an individual level, I think each person can look at the plastic they use in their life and say, do they need this? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people just says, have it wrap things up in plastic that don't need that. Um, food storage containers are really easy to get in glass and then you can get you know if you had a lid that was plastic or a lid that 
there's two issues. One is it, is it touching the food and then getting the chemicals in you? The other is it creating plastic that will then become waste. So if you can avoid it altogether, that's great. Mm. Um, there's the, the single use plastic is, is becoming a big topic of discussion. Things like the grocery bags. So you go to your grocery store and you bring home six bags. You could have brought cloth bags or something that more long lasting that's not plastic, but you forgot or whatever. And you get these bags, their lifespan goes from the grocery store to your house, mm. you know, five minutes, 10 minutes is all of their useful lifespan. And those bags will last forever. So think about things like that and try to eliminate those, you know, give it a real good effort to get those out of your life. Straws are the same way. You know, their lifespan is for the moment that you're drinking that drink and then they're going to end up in the ocean forever. Mm. So um, you look around at what you have that's plastic that you can eliminate. You know, I think one thing that, that you don't want to happen is that people feel overwhelmed, which given everything that I've said here, it can be very overwhelming. <laughs> I remember when I first started working in this field and I had my kids and I, didn't want them exposed to things. And I was like, oh, we got to get rid of everything in the house. But that can cause kind of a, a backlash and then you give up. And so I would say take it slowly and just pay attention because you'll start to see things in your life that are easy to change or that maybe they really bother you. You know, like you just keep thinking, I should get rid of that. I should get rid of that. And I would say tackle that problem first hmm. because then you're going to feel good about it. You did something that you got rid of that stress and, um, and you get, kind of get comfortable with that and your change in your life. And then something else will bubble to the top that you'll notice. Oh, I don't need that really either. Or I can do this instead. And you gradually start building a lifestyle that kind of is in a line with your belief that we want to get rid of these things globally. That's, that's my approach. And um, there's a lot of information about what you, you know, tips you can, can do to avoid these chemicals in your lives. We have a Twitter feed, um, I can promo at Endo yeah, Exchange, um, that uh, we have a TEDx daily tip for how to avoid endocrine disrupting chemicals. So it's not just plastics, but um, I think those sorts of things are helpful. Um, you can educate yourself. I saw this great documentary recently called A Plastic Ocean. Okay. But it is really moving. You'd probably really like to see that. I mean, it's sad, I'm write it down. Um, but it gives you the, it's motivating for people to do what they can. Um, I guess those are the, the things that I'd recommend for people. Yeah. It's, it's changing your habits. It's just like if you want to get healthy, if you want yeah. to lose weight, if whatever you want to do, you just got to work on changing your habits. And it's the same thing when it comes to this. Uh, but really it's going to take consumers to to create any change because the corporations, the big companies, they're not going to do it. They don't care until, until the consumers stop, stop buying things. So it, it really, it depends on us. Now let's go to the other side of it. I mean, even if you have, you know, changed your habits, gotten rid of all these things. I mean, these chemicals are still everywhere regardless. I mean, you go to the store, you go to a restaurant, they're going to be all over the place. Is there anything that we can do to, and especially for those who are looking to get pregnant or are pregnant, is there anything that we can do to protect against the impacts of the plastic, even if we've tried to remove as much of it as we can? So um, there's not anything that I know about like chelation where you can like get the chemicals out of your body or mm. taking supplements to break them down or anything like that. I haven't ever heard of anything that works that way. I mean, I guess I should say that for the plastics, you know, there are some extreme measures people take for heavy metals and things like that. Yeah. Um, but for the average person, um, 
yeah, I haven't seen anything on that. I think avoidance is the best practice I know. And the good news, I have one bit of good news <laughs> is that most plastics like bisphenols and phthalates, they don't stay in your body for very long at all. You know, like in a couple of days, if you reduce your exposure, you drop your level significantly. So it's not like lead that builds up in the body or some of the other chemicals that are, um, they talk about fat loving versus water loving chemicals. And the ones that soak into your the fats in your body they're the ones that stick around longer, but the, um, and you wouldn't even know which were which. So it's probably, mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't need to know that part of it, but some of them, um, and particularly, um, the plastics I've been talking about, um, they, they, your body, um, breaks them down and flushes them out pretty quickly. Okay. So reducing your exposure will re reduce them in your body that quickly. So Reducing exposure would then also, if you're someone who takes care of your health, if you're someone who exercises regularly and is sweating and is increasing your metabolism through eating healthy and working out, et cetera, I mean, this, you got to think, is also going to help get rid of it quickly or at least lessen the amount that's going to be inside of you at, at one particular time. I'm sure there's no research on that, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I can't really speak to that, but... I think it, it, it doesn't hurt. I think staying healthy, you know, all of these things are things that are potentials that our bodies are going to respond to, right? Mm. Um, you know, we are born with this potential. We're born now with hundreds of chemicals in our body. And so how our body responds to that um, is different for everybody. And I think being healthy is always, you know, a good response to keep your body's immune system up and it's, you know, everything functioning as it is peak performance, <laughs> you know, is always a good idea. So I definitely recommend that. So if, if people wanted to learn more, I know you guys have the Twitter feed you mentioned, is there, do you guys have any, like a, a website that people can go to? Do you host events? Is there anything else that you can share that if someone wanted to help out or learn a little bit more that they could go to? Yes, we have a website. It's very easy to find T E D X like TEDx like you said, TED Talks, but the key is to put .org, O-R-G, because we're a nonprofit. So TEDx.org um, is our website, and we have, uh, we have a lot of general information about endocrine disruption on there. We have a fact sheet that's in several different languages. Um, we do podcasts. We have an oil and gas program looking at that fossil fuel side of things, and we do podcasts around that, very short 10, 15-minute podcasts answering questions about um, fossil fuels and fracking. Uh, um, we have, we created some infographics recently that uh, we're really proud of that just show you the basics of endocrine disruption. Um, and uh, we do webinars. So we have, we host scientists that will um, speak and present their findings on a webinar, um, helps it make it more accessible to people. Mm -hmm. What am I forgetting? Oh, the main thing that we do is we create databases. And so um, this may or may not be helpful to the average person looking for tips for their life, but um, we pull together the scientific findings for, for different topics, whether it's bisphenols or it's um, um, perfluorinated compounds or you know different things like that, and um, extract the data from the basic science that's been done and put it into like a spreadsheet and or make a searchable database of it. We have a list of endocrine disrupting chemicals. It's got about 1400 chemicals on it now. Um, so we try to give people access to that scientific information that's typically buried in the scientific journals and mm. nobody would know about it. And then we've published several reviews in the scientific literature ourselves. So we conduct systematic reviews and, and publish those findings. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure that's everything. 
I'll make sure to put the uh, the links uh, or the link to your website anywhere where, where people can find a lot of that um, on on the show notes here. Um, and you know, it's interesting that you guys have that database because even when I was trying to switch into just natural like soaps and natural, just like everything that I put in my body, the amount of chemicals and the amount of like ingredients that are in these things is incredible. And so I had no idea what was good, what was bad. I was trying to research on the internet. Yeah. Still quite difficult. You do basically have to read research articles, but then there's so many. Um, so I, I really like that you guys have that because that is a really difficult area um, to kind of navigate. Yeah, it is. And there's, there's, I read ingredient lists all the time and, and I don't even understand a lot of what's in them. And, um, you know, I just often can go for the simple things that have, you know, the fewer ingredients possible and words that I understand. Mm -hmm. That's what I like. Um, I also know what some of the real bad actors are. So it's easier for me to identify that, but you can always use our list. And like you said, the, in personal care products, there's a lot of labeling that's really been helpful. Yeah. So people are, you know, that there's, there's laws around what can, can be in products and what it needs to be labeled, but there's also the brands themselves are saying we're free of this, that, and the other thing. Mm. And that only really shows up in the personal care product space. Not really, you know, you don't go to building materials and, and see, you know, what it, they're not labeled really well. And, um, other things in your life, furniture, you know, you might see a flame retardant label, but that's about it. So, mm. um, that's that piece where we need better information around what's in the things that we interact with every day. We do. I think, you know, we're far from, from finding the solution, but, you know, we're thankful that people like you and your organization are, you know, kind of diving into this area and, and kind of getting these things out there so that, you know, the general public can, can know what's going on. And hopefully that's, what's going to eventually create, create change. So, I mean, first of all, thank you for doing that. I think that's amazing. Um, is there anything that, that we've missed uh, on this podcast that, that, you know, is kind of burning in your mind right now that you want to make sure people understand? Uh, is there anything that you can think of that you want to, that you want to share before we, uh, before we wrap it up? I guess, uh, I think we covered everything really well. Um, I would emphasize, you know, that there's a lot we don't know. There's vulnerable periods in people's lives that we don't really know much about the impacts of the endocrine disruptors like puberty, um, pregnancy and the effects on the mother, uh, not just the offspring, um, menopause, times like that where your hormones are really changing, um, that uh, just emphasizes why we need to be uh, preventive around it because we don't really have a lot of good research on that. And then for the, for uh, a pregnant woman really to protect future generations, we need, um, that's where we really need kids, teenagers, pre-pregnancy, whatever people in their twenties before they have babies need to really pay attention to this because that's, um, you know, generation after generation is exposed. And one thing I didn't mention is that the research, particularly in, both in humans, but also particularly in animals, they're showing that generation after generation show impacts from the initial exposure. So you are mm -hmm. impacted by what your grandmother was exposed to, wow. even what your great grandmother might've been exposed to. I and mean, if you think about it, you, the cell that became you was in your grandmother's womb <laughs> because she had the baby and the baby had the cells that are going to create the next generation. Yeah. That's three generations exposed at once. Um, so that just makes it a, an even more daunting issue. Um, but even more important that we really try to get the planet cleaned up and, um, and protect ourselves and, and learn as much as we can about it and not get freaked out. You know, you, 
we, that stress doesn't help anybody. Um, so you just need to kind of do the best that you can and, and work to make better change. Yeah. I, I mean, you're right. Stress doesn't help, but at the same time, at least that's sending a signal that, Hey, maybe things need to change. And so hopefully that mm-hmm. can, you know, be the wake up signal for people to, to start to create change. Cause that's the only way that, that really this is going to happen. And, you know, that's interesting that it's not just your kids that this may affect, it's their kids and then their kids and their kids and so on and so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, what we do today is, is impacting more than just ourselves. Um, and I think that's the way that we need to, to think about it. Uh, Carol, listen, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really, really appreciate you coming on here and sharing this information. I don't think there's enough people talking about this, um, not publicly anyway, or not that we hear so often. So uh, it's great yeah. to have you on and, and, and to share this information. So thank you again. That's a wrap, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you could do me a wonderful favor by taking a screenshot and sharing it with your friends on social media. Feel free to tag me at healthsimple underscore and let me know your thoughts. And if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me a DM as well. I would love to hear from you. I hope you guys all have a wonderful day.